0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning in verse 13 For this reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God which you heard from us you welcomed it not as the word of men but as it is in truth the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. The passage starts off with a celebration. And it continues with sorrow. There is a lot of emotion that's packed into these few verses. People go to church for a lot of different reasons. People listen to sermons with a lot of different motives. Sometimes we listen, but we're not hearing with... Our mind or our heart, we may come to Jesus Christ as sinners alone and we're saved alone, but we're called to come together in a local assembly for the purpose of worship, for the purpose of prayer, for the purpose of mutual edification. We may be saved alone, but we were never meant to stand alone or stay alone. You're a part of a body. The Bible says that we being many are one body joined and fitted together. In this short epistle, Paul recounts How the church was born in chapter one and how the church matures in chapter two and how the church's foundation was laid in chapter three. And later, Paul will exhort the church to walk in holiness and to walk in harmony and to walk in honesty and hope and helpfulness in chapter four. And we're going to learn a whole lot more about what it means to be a Christian in the local assembly. But in this passage of scripture, Paul points us to the word of God in us in verse 13. And then God's people all around us in verses 14 through 16. And then the ever-present reality of God's glory before us in verses 17 through 20. We get a clue concerning the condition of the Thessalonian hearts by the use of key words. Paul uses the word affliction in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6 and in verse Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 3 the word affliction means it means pressure from circumstances and suffered in chapter 2 verse 14 which really is the same word that used to describe the sufferings of Jesus and then in verse 15 also he uses the term persecuted and the word persecuted means driven and rejected and also he uses the word contrary in verse 15 which is used of stormy winds that blow and hinder progress and then he also uses the word hindered in verse 18 which is a It's a military term which pictures a road that has been so badly damaged that it's almost impossible to travel, if you will. In spite of affliction, in spite of suffering, in spite of persecution, in spite of contrary circumstances, in spite of rough roads, the believers were to be filled with joy in the knowledge of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit and in hope. Now, think about this for just a moment. In order to communicate to people who are afflicted, people who are suffering, people who are persecuted, people who have been driven and rejected, people who have had the stormy winds blowing In an adverse way in their life, they needed to have a mechanism whereby they could experience comfort and hope and encouragement. Listen carefully to what it says in in verse 13, because he's pointing again to the model church and their preference for the word of God. He says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe he begins with an outburst of celebration. For those who hear the word, receive the word, believe the word, internalize the word, and then begin to live it out in in, in their lives. Now, what reason is he talking about? For this reason, we thank God without season. Without ceasing in the beginning of the chapter, Paul's been defending himself against the opposition and the persecution and the accusations that were made against him and his ministry team. Their integrity, their conduct had been called into question. But in spite of all that, a powerful God had made his presence known in their lives. It's for that reason. So his attention turns to the issue of thanksgiving and praise for the people who have received the word of God. The Thessalonian believers welcomed the message of Jesus. Look what he says. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And then he says the word of God, which effectively works in you who believe. I typically experience two kinds of people. Italian people and those who wish they weren't. No, I always say that. You know that's not true. I do experience two kinds of people. Those who believe the word and those who don't believe the word. There are many people who will say, you know, I tried the Bible, but it didn't work for me. I read about the promises of God, but it didn't work for me. But look what what Paul says. The word of God effectively works in you who believe. You know, where the promises of God and the power of God and the presence of God comes from. It comes from those who actually do embrace what God is saying in his word over and over again. I tell you, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so God calls you each and every morning to get up. And he asks you the question each and every morning. Will you love me today? Will you trust me today? Will you believe what I have for you today? The Thessalonian believers received the word of God through the faithful preaching and then the faithful teaching of these men of God. And the word received is very interesting. It means accepted from another. It's a word which means you hear with the ear. While the word welcomed in verse 13 means hearing with the heart. So he says, you received, that means you heard with your mind, and then later... You welcomed it, speaking of the word. You received it into your heart. It became a part of yourself. It became a part of your core being. They received the word, but they weren't content to simply listen to what it says. They received it into their heart. And you see, each and every time, hopefully, you come to Calvary Chapel, you have, you have this opportunity. You, you have the opportunity not only to hear the word of God, but I'm going to encourage you and I'm going to discourage you from unbelief and from wickedness. I'm going to discourage you that your affliction, that your suffering, that, that the winds that are blowing in your life that are contrary to the things that are happening in the rough roads, that all of these things aren't meant to bring you to a place where you reject the power of God and the presence of God and the promises of God. But it's to bring you to a place where you'll push in even closer to the Lord. And so they received the word of God. Listen carefully. So that it could operate in their life. Sometimes for us. The space between our hearing. Mind and our believing heart is a long way to travel. Travel. We hear the truth, but we don't always welcome the truth. And see, that's the difference between a model church and a church that still has a whole lot of work cut out for it. The model church loves the Bible, loves the word, loves the promises of God, and is not just simply content to hear it, but but also wants to put it into practice. And of course, James talks about this. Don't simply be a hearer of the word, but a doer. Jesus warned people about hearing with a right mind. And a right heart over and over again. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It says in Matthew 13, 9, Jesus gave another warning in Mark 4, 24. Be careful. Take heed what you listen to. Because guess what? The things that you are listening to is going to persuade you to honor and obey God or persuade you to dishonor and disobey God. So faithful people preached and taught. The way that uh, God typically advances the gospel is through faithful men and women who share the word of God with unbelievers. And the gospel message, listen, he says, was heard from us, but clearly it was believed as coming from God himself. And then Paul uses the word truth to describe the word of God. He uses the term word of God to describe the scriptures. This should just cause me to ask the most simple and basic question that needs to be asked. Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe it? Do you believe the Bible is telling you, listen carefully, the truth about yourself and about your circumstances? And about your condition. I live in a world where I'm constantly dealing with people who love and embrace the Bible and those who ridicule it, criticize it, reject it. There are some people who would rather judge the Bible than allow the Bible to judge them. They would rather read the Bible, but they are frightened that the Bible will read them. Is it wrong? To doubt or question or criticize the Bible? Let me be very clear here. The person who questions, criticizes the Bible, literally places themselves in a position of authority and inspiration above the Bible. Now, don't get me wrong. I would be lying to you if I said I never had a question about the Bible. Or I never had a problem that I was struggling through with the Bible. But let me be very clear here. Every time I had a problem with the Bible, the Bible wasn't the problem. Can I repeat that? Every time I've had a problem with the Bible, the Bible wasn't the problem. The Bible was asking me to do something or be something. That for whatever reason, I didn't think I could be or do. The people in the young church at Thessaloniki. You see, they had not simply an appreciation of the Word of God, but they also had a right attitude towards it. The Bible claims to be the Word of God. That's what it says in Second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. Remember, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The Bible is a book, but it isn't a book like any other book. It's a divine message from God with the Lord himself as the author. And there's a reason why it's called the scripture in Mark 12, 10 and Luke 4, 21 and 2 Peter 1, 20. There's a reason why Jesus, in speaking to the religious leaders of his own day, said, you search the scriptures for in them you think that you have life, but they are those which testify of me. Jesus brings out this amazing statement that everything in the Bible is about him. Now, that would be the most perverse and wicked and selfish thing ever said. Unless it was true. And of all the names given to the scripture, my favorite is the word of God because it's Significant and impressive and complete. The Bible, the word of God, is sufficient to justify the faith of the weakest saint. It's the source of wisdom and of love and hope. And because the Bible is divine in its origin and divine in its composition and divine in its preservation and divine in its content and divine in its character, it's also divine in its cost. The church came into existence because Of the preaching of the word of God. Listen carefully. The church at Thessalonica came into existence because Paul preached and people believed the message. Uh, It may shock you and surprise you, but that's exactly how this church came into existence. It's sharing the faith. It's ministering the word. It's sharing the gospel over and over again. The same word that brought salvation would also enable the Thessalonian believers to live lives of joy for Jesus in the midst of suffering. And that's a key concept for each and every one of you who are harassed by Satan, who are completely demoralized. Because of the circumstances in your life. You know, show me a believer's Bible. And I can tell you a lot about that believer. You know, it may sound cliche. You've, You've heard the expression over and over again. But when a believer's Bible is falling apart, you can rest assured that they aren't. I love it. I love seeing the chapters spring out of your Bible. Saying, look, I've just beat this little baby to death. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. That's why I got saddle leather. I needed an industrial strength cover for my Bible. You know, how you treat your Bible is a pretty good indicator of how you're going to treat the Lord. Jesus is the living word. The written word and the living word, in a sense, have so much in common. Both are bread. Both are light. Both are truth. Both came into existence by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that overshadowed a young virgin. And it was the Holy Spirit that moved on men through the power of God to record the message that's right in your lap. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God forever. And Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Think about this. The believers appreciated the word of God. They appropriated the word of God. And then they applied the word of God in their life. If you're wondering why we place such an emphasis on the Bible, that's the reason because we know that it will become a sustenance to you. Because when your world is falling apart, you may not always be able to find me or to see me or to call me. But God's answer is never further than the Bible that you have. That's why I have lots of them and have them everywhere you go. So the believers obeyed the word of God. They allowed the word of God to work in their lives. So appreciate the Bible, appropriate the Bible. But by all means, apply the word of God to your life. We have to hear it and we have to do it. And when you're faced with affliction, pressure from circumstances, when you're faced with suffering, when you're faced with persecution, when the road in front of you seems hopelessly blocked and spiritual travel seems horribly restricted, This is what's going to sustain you. It's the presence of God and the promise of God. Listen carefully. I need to say this, even though I hate to have to say this. If you don't believe the word of God. All that's left to you is the word of men. If you don't believe the word of God, all you have left are the fear and the suspicion and the inaccuracy and the inconsistency and the wickedness and man-made hope of self-help, self-development, self-image. You might get words of justice. You might get words of equality. You might get words about commitment, but commitment to what? Everything about human beings end in death. The older I get, the more I see that. It's appointed once for a human being to die. And then the judgment and the people you grew up with will begin to die. And the older you get, the more people die. And when you come to the end of your life, you come to a place in your life where you know more people in heaven than you do on the earth. But make no mistake about it, what can a human being's words do to ease the pain and the pang of the circumstances that you find yourself in? Beware. Beware when you reject the word of God. And look what it says in verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. In what way did the church at Thessalonica become imitators of the churches of God? Listen carefully. First of all, they began to imitate Jesus. Second of all, they began to imitate Paul. Third of all, they began to experience what Jesus experienced and what Paul experienced. The moment that you embrace the truth about God in Christ Jesus, there are going to be people who say, you are. You're crazy. you become a Jesus freak. You've become one of those Bible-toting, Scripture-quoting Jesus people. But that's exactly right. The test of their newfound faith was dramatic and immediate. Right from the start, they experienced persecution and suffering. And when you receive Jesus Christ... It isn't unusual for you to experience opposition from some of your family and some of your friends. The people you grew up with and the people that you partied with and the people you identified with. The moment you come to a place where you go, this is right and this is wrong. All of the people who are willing to do what was wrong with you will criticize you. And so. Paul reminds the new believers that their circumstances aren't novel, it's not isolated, it's not new. The religious leaders sought to exterminate the church in Judea. And doesn't it make sense? When Jesus Christ said what he said, they decided that they were going to kill him. When Paul had a radical conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ, they decided, they covenanted together that they were going to kill him. When the churches were established in Judea through relentless opposition and persecution, they decided that they were going to get rid of it because all the people who reject the gospel of grace, listen carefully, the people who reject the gospel, the people, who reject the gospel of grace embrace the certainty of judgment. Listen carefully. Remember what I said? If you reject the word of God, all that you have left is the words of human beings. And if you reject the grace of God and the mercy of God and the salvation of God, then all you have, all you have All you have left to you is the certainty of judgment. And that's how the text can go from such a high to such a low. Paul celebrates their willingness to receive the word of God in joy. And then there is this heartbreaking sorrow and sadness which invades their heart as Paul comes to the realization that there are those people who reject Christ. In verse 15, it says, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God. It's in the aorist tense in the original language when it says, and they do not please God. The idea is they haven't pleased God in the past. They're not pleasing God in the present. And so long as they resist and reject the Lord Jesus Christ, they can't possibly be be pleasing to God. Now, you have to think this through. Paul's point becomes... The person who ever dreams, the person who ever imagines, even the the slight possibility that God is happy with their wickedness and with their unbelief, with their opposition, with their accusation and their persecution, you are living a lie. You are self-deluded. Do you know what's the worst thing about self-delusion? In regular delusion, you're on your guard. Regular delusion. You know, do you ever go to a magic show and you go, "Okay, I'm going to figure out how this guy's doing this. You know, you you go, that's why you go, look, nothing up my sleeve. You go, Okay, I'm prepared. I am working hard to try and figure out how you're trying to pull the wool over my eyes. But the self-deceived person doesn't have the ability to to guard their own heart because they gladly, personally, wonderfully embrace the delusion for themselves. The churches in Judea and Galilee experienced enormous pressure and persecution from their own relatives. And so when Paul says, who killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and who have persecuted us, is Paul some sort of religious bigot? Let's even go there. Ready? Is Paul exercising hate speech? See, you're laughing because you understand something. He's a recovering Pharisee himself. Let's just be clear here. Does Paul hate the Jews? No, he is a Jew. Does he hate the Pharisees? No one is more sensitive and compassionate concerning the circumstances that they face because that used to be him. This isn't hate speech. Saul, before he became Paul, was a persecutor of the church. Before coming to Jesus on the road to Damascus, he loved the Jews and he sought to provide for them. In Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11, he goes so far as to even offer that he himself would be condemned if if he felt like his condemnation would result in the salvation of all of the Jews, he was willing to go there. I'm, I'm here to tell you, I'm not willing to go there. I love you, but guess what? I'm, I'm not willing to go to hell for any of you. But I'm willing to learn... What it means to love like Paul so that I would at least be willing to say it and mean it. Why did the religious leaders kill Jesus and their own prophets? You know the answer. They were repeating the sins of their ancestors. The world has always consisted of people who embrace man-made religion over the revelation of God. People who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ and persecute his people. They're not pleasing to God. Paul was willing to expose their wickedness. And look what he says in verse 16, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sin, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And now we go from this celebration of joy to this sorrow and sadness that is unspeakable. How far were the enemies of the gospel willing to take their persecution and opposition? Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles. The word forbidding is a, is a Greek verb, yo. It's translated forbid 17 times in the Greek New Testament, hinder twice. And in Romans chapter 1 verse 3, it's translated let in the old King James. But let in the old King James means exactly the opposite in New English. When we say let, we mean let somebody do something. When they said let, it meant Prevent. So it makes things difficult when, when something has the exact opposite of what you grew up thinking it means. I grew up thinking sick meant not well. But I hear somebody say, "Ooh, dude, I was sick. Really? Yeah. Wow, I thought it was cool. Cool means sick now. Get with it. I'm so hopelessly out of touch. The root word means lopped or clipped or shaved. The word literally meant to cut off or to cut short. And so it came to mean to forbid or to prevent. And so when he says forbidding us or preventing or hindering us to speak to the Gentiles so that they may say it's one thing to oppose the gospel. It's another thing to resist the gospel. And it's a whole nother world to say I'm going to resist you and oppose you to the point where I don't want you to even tell the gospel to anyone else. We don't even want to run the risk that someone might hear these explosive words. Because guess what? If they believe that Jesus Christ is really the Messiah, if they really believe that he died for their sins and rose from the dead for their justification, if they fully, finally and completely in their heart attach themselves to the true and living God, why they might leave Our religious organization. Yes, they might. Hopefully they will. Opposition and persecution often comes in direct proposition to faithful preaching of the message. And Jesus' persecution and opposition and Paul's persecution and opposition came not from compromise. Because... Of they're willing to tell the truth and to tell it over and over and over again. The world can stand a moral message. The world can even stand people's spirituality. Talk about morality, we're fine with that. Talk about spirituality, we're fine with that. No one has ever said to me, you can't talk about morality. You can't talk about spirituality. But on more than one occasion, I've had people say to me, Whatever you do, don't use the J word. Don't speak in Jesus name. And I said, but there is no other name given under heaven whereby human beings must be saved. We know. Isn't there anything inside of your heart? How could you be so wicked and so empty and so cold and so uncaring as to watch people walk into eternity apart from Christ. The Bible teaches that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. How are you doing? What happens when you experience a setback? How do you deal with suffering? Do you become self-absorbed and self-centered? Do you act like the only person In the world whose hurt is you, are you the only person in the lion's den? Are you the only person in the fiery furnace? We all experience sickness. We all experience pain. We all experience bereavement. But I'm I'm talking about a special kind of suffering. It's a suffering that comes because of your love and your testimony of Jesus Christ. Perhaps your family has rejected you, but if they have, make sure it's for all the right reasons. It's not because you're weird or wicked or selfish. It's because you truly really love the Lord Jesus and you're willing to take your stand with him. And look what it says in verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Earlier in the chapter, Paul was accused of being a fraud and a liar and a false prophet. But now he's also accused of not really caring. But Paul says, Don't you remember Acts chapter 17? we were ridden out on a rail for Paul to remain would have meant almost certainly that he he would die so in what way were Paul and Silas taken away from the believers the word is apo orphanizo it's a compound word apo means away from and orphanos is a word that you're going to be familiar with Fatherless, motherless. It's used to describe a child who's lost their parents. So Paul is expressing not just a sentiment. He says, but we brethren haven't been taken away from you for a short time in presence. Prosopo. It actually is an interesting word. It's The dative of prosopon, which means face. You and I, we have an expression. We talk about FaceTime. I'd like to spend some FaceTime with you. What do we mean when we say that? Be with you in reality. But again, our culture and our society, it's come to mean something else. You can have your Facebook friends. (laughs) Your Facebook friends are your electronic friends. So you have electronic friends and you have real friends. Now, Paul is writing this obviously way before the Internet. So he's not talking about being their Facebook friends. He's wanting to spend quality time in order to be with them. Paul endeavored or hastened or hurried. The word means to be zealous or make every effort. He says, we were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. That's the way way one translation puts it. Because when you love someone and when they're going through a trial and tribulation, you want to drop everything and get to them as quickly as possible. That's what Paul is writing. Love believes they need me. That's one of the ways that you know if you really love someone. It's when they're hurt and they're empty and they're in desperate need, and the first thing that comes into your heart is, They need me. I need to be there. I need to be with them. I need to be with them in their presence. Love believes they need us and they need our comfort and they need our help. And so Paul desperately wants to return. But he couldn't. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, it says in verse 18, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. Paul's strong desire was to come to them. Look what it says. Time and again. It's it's really a Greek translation of once, twice. But in that language, it meant repeatedly. There's a popular song in our culture. Once, twice. How does the rest of it go? Three times a lady. Yeah, the girls go, I know that song. I used to dance to that song. But it doesn't just mean once or twice. It means repeatedly. It was his way of saying, I tried to come and I tried to come over and over and over again. By the way, he says, but Satan hindered me. You know, it's interesting in the New Testament. Paul is trying to get to a particular place and he says he wanted to go to a particular place, but the Holy Spirit forbade him. And here he says, I wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered me. How do you know if it's the Holy Spirit closing the door or it's Satan hindering you? In law enforcement, we have a, a statement that we use often. It's called M.O. Modus operandi. Modus operandi is the way in which a subject works. And the way Satan works is by killing, destroying, using wickedness, opposition, persecution, and suffering. Paul believed in a literal Satan. Satan. A supernatural being who opposed the work of God, Paul describes Satan as the tempter who tempts men later in chapter three, verse five, the evil one in second Thessalonians chapter three, verse three, the God of this world in second corinthians four four the prince of the power of the air in ephesians two two Paul uses a different word for hindering here in verse sixteen though or that or here in verse eighteen that he used in verse sixteen. Here, the word is in copto. It's a military term. It means to cut into or to impede. It was a war term that was used to describe in order to stop the advancement of an army, you would tear out the road and you would dig trenches and impediments. In Iran and in Afghanistan, or excuse me, in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, they have um, devices that they use that are called IEDs, improvised explosive devices. IEDs are set on the road to explode in order to hinder the progress of the army that's coming at you. That's what Satan does. Satan puts explosive measures so that the kingdom of, of God won't be advanced. As a matter of fact, one Bible writer, John Walberg says Satan had broken up the road before him. And Paul couldn't get through to them, even though he longed to see them and to be a further help to them. That's the idea. And in verse 19, it says, For what is our joy or crown? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? And then in verse 20, it says, for you are our glory and our joy. We go from. The celebration of a group of people who have heard the gospel, believed the gospel, received the gospel, and allowed it to transform their life to sorrow and sadness for those who resist the gospel and oppose the gospel. And Paul still wants to be with him. But there's real spiritual warfare taking place. But all isn't lost. Paul cries out and asks the question, what is our hope? Paul asks the question that a lot of people are asking right now. What does the future hold for you and what does the future hold for me? Paul has a choice. He can give in to remorse or regret or sorrow. He can. Be bummed and agitated over the fact that he's unable to be reconciled to the people that he loves. But he doesn't. Because he knows that there's a future in Christ. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, you know what the implication is? There is no such thing as legitimate grounds for hope apart from Jesus Christ. Well, you know, I hope everything will work out. It won't, apart from Christ. Well, I hope I can experience forgiveness of sin. It won't happen, apart from Christ. I hope I can be reconciled to God. It won't happen, apart from Christ. Well, I hope I get to go to heaven someday. It won't happen, apart from Christ. The Word crown is the Greek noun stephanos. The full definition of the word is, quote, that which surrounds or encompasses in the ancient world. It could mean a a wall. It could mean a crowd. It it became to be used of a garland for distinguished service. It was the reward that was given to victors when they would win the game. It was sort of the ancient version of the Olympic gold medal. And when it's used with the term rejoicing, the act of glorying, it's a crown in which we can boast. In other words, when Paul began to think of his love and his commitment and his affection for the people at Thessalonica, he sensed he could see himself on the platform receiving the crown for having run the race and won the race. It's the joy that comes from doing exactly what you know you were intended to do. And here's what he was intended to do. To prepare people for eternity. And so we come back to that same expression once again at the end of the chapter. He says, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Paul lives in the earnest expectation that Jesus could come back. And the word presence, by the way, is a word that that you need to get used to. It's It's a word translated from the Greek word parousha. It meant more than just the physical and anatomical presence of Jesus, although that's part of the meaning. It is the it is the sum and the substance of the end of all things when everything that is wrong becomes right and everything temporal becomes eternal. Is it not even you in the presence of Jesus at His coming? And I don't mean... When an aneurysm goes to your brain and, and you stop thinking, I'm not talking about when your heart shuts down and I'm not talking about getting in a car accident. I'm talking about what theologians call the eschatological circumstances of the end of all things. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about when the world comes to a screeching halt and Jesus Christ returns. Here's what I look forward to. Seeing you there. Knowing that your real presence in the face of Jesus is going to be my crown. Look what it says in verse 20. You are our glory and our joy. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. God will protect everything that will last forever. And God will not protect anything That doesn't last forever. There's only two things that matter. Christ. And you in Christ, in his presence. That's what Paul was thinking. Some of the people, let's just be honest, were probably a big fat stinking drag to Paul. They were a trial and a burden. But Paul doesn't make a big deal out of the fact that they're a trial and a burden. He sees them in the presence of Christ. In Philemon chapter one, verse six, it says, "I pray that you, you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ." I like that. You can imagine the people reading Paul's letter were really encouraged. They were really encouraged because they were going through a time of intense persecution, of painful trial, of great suffering. Some might have even been tempted to throw in the towel and say, look, the doubt and the discouragement has rubbed me raw. I'm ready to stop. And Paul says, don't give up. Lay hold of the spiritual resources you have in Jesus Christ. You have the Word of God in you. You have the people of God around you. You have the glory of God before you. So don't give up. Paul's not content to go to heaven all by himself. I hope you're not either. I hope that the forgiveness that you've experienced and the joy that you've experienced and the grace that you've experienced, that you're not content to keep it to yourself, but you want to share it with anyone and everyone who is willing to listen, who's willing to welcome the truth with an open mind and an open heart, knowing that believing the truth will transform them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we celebrate and I celebrate each and every man and each and every woman who has heard the word of truth. But who's also allowed it to enter into their heart. And the way that they live. And Lord, there is supreme sadness and deep sorrow for each and every person who. By ridicule and criticism has rejected the truth. Lord, for the person with the empty heart who refuses to believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. But I pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to knock. And that the invitation would continue to go forth. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive him, to repent of sin and to follow Jesus and obey Jesus. Lord, I pray that in the midst of suffering, when the road in front of us seems blocked, even blown up, that Lord, you're still in the business of advancing the kingdom. And that even though, Lord, we can't personally always go where we want to go, and even though we personally can't always do what we want to do, Lord, we pray that you would send exactly the right man, exactly the right woman into that hospital room, into that home, into those circumstances where our loved ones could hear the gospel. Hear the truth. Believe the truth. Receive the truth. So that they would be willing to walk in the truth.